The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we are so grateful for your presence with us in this space today. We acknowledge you, we welcome you, and we thank you for your love and your mercy over us. And we're so amazed by the fact that you take the things that are broken and hurtful, the things that we want to just do away with and forget about in our lives. And you don't just do away with them, but you take them and you make them into something new and something beautiful, that you tell a story that is vast and open and expansive and just beautiful. And we ask that today as we pause, as we open the scriptures, that these would not be words or stories or people from long ago, but this would be your voice speaking into our very being, that you would give birth to something new in us, that you would help us see the story that you're longing to create, to write. And we are so grateful for your love. And we ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Ecclesia on the West Side. Yeah, AKA Ecclesia on the Best Side. So uh, I may or may, yeah, I see somebody like, yeah, that's good. I may or may not have caused a uh, bit of a rivalry last week. So uh, I missed you guys. I love you. I'm so glad to be back over here with you guys. But I uh, was preaching this sermon downtown last week. And at the 11, you know, the energy was good, everything's flowing, and I made a comment about like, I'm the campus pastor on the best side. And they laughed, they thought it was funny. And so I go to lunch with Stephen Hicks, who's our executive pastor after, and he's like, I love that. Every time in the next sermon that you have something to say about the West Side, you just should just call it the best side. So I doubled down at Sunday night at five. And like the first time, uh, they didn't think it was funny, you know? It was like, it didn't land quite, quite well enough. So I said, well, maybe they didn't get it. I'll try it again. So I did it again and like, same, like similar kind of response, like you could kind of feel it. And after the third time, it was just like everything turned. You know what I'm talking about? It's like that moment when you're at your house or you're at a party and you're all gathered around, you got a crowd of people and you're talking about how much you love Houston. You know, you're talking about the Astros, you're talking about all the different restaurants, some of the beautiful parks, NASA, you know, we're close to Galveston, all the things you love about Houston. And then there's that one person that chimes in and they start talking about their hometown. And their hometown isn't like uh, Pittsburgh or uh, New York or Los Angeles. Their hometown is Dallas, you know what I'm talking about? And like, you can feel it, like everybody in the room all of a sudden turns like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like you can't, like, hold on a second. So it was kind of like that moment uh, last Sunday night where it was just like, whoa, like too far. So I was like, okay, like, so I just kind of moved on. Uh, So didn't mean to cause a rivalry, but I just, I love you. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so grateful to get to be the campus pastor over here and it's good to be back. So we are continuing in a series that uh, Chris kicked off for us a few weeks ago on the Celtic way of evangelism. Uh, And he started it with a video sermon from a taqueria in Houston and threw out what's now known as the Ecclesia Taqueria Challenge, which is to go to 10 taquerias in 30 days, 
because that is clearly the most Celtic way to do evangelism in the city of Houston. You're tracking like you're on board. And then uh, the week after that, Mitzi Mock, who's a recently new re-addition to our staff, uh, talked about this Celtic idea of a soul friend and how important it is to connect with people on a deep level and how impactful that is not only for us, but for other people as well. Did a brilliant job with that. And then last week, Sean was here uh, and he was, I thought he did a great job taking this word evangelism that if we're honest, some of us, it, it causes us to bristle, maybe because we've been on the receiving end of some evangelism and it didn't feel great, or maybe because we were uh, on the other end where we were taught to go do that and it wasn't quite right. And so he really unpacked, hey, what do we do with that? And I thought he did a really great job with that tension. So we're going to pick up um, and continue this series on the Celtic way of evangelism. And to do that, I want to share with you a story that until last weekend, I had never shared publicly with anyone ever. Uh, so that's going to be fun and awesome. Uh, and then I want to look at two stories in the scriptures about people who are possessed by demons. Because again, that's clearly the most straightforward, linear, logical way to talk about the Celtic way of evangelism. This is what you would do if you were going to do a sermon on this. So uh, I, I kind of want to go there. But what you need to know, let's talk about like this story from, from when I was in college. So uh, back in the 20th century, when I went to college, right, um, uh, in the 1900s, totally different time, uh, I, I got to campus and immediately figured out that this was a world that was completely different than what I had grown up in. Uh, I grew up in a really conservative uh, environment, and I went to a very conservative Christian school. It was the kind of school where if you wanted to be eligible to play sports, you had to pass Bible class. And if you wanted to pass Bible class, you had to memorize large chunks of scripture and recite them in front of the whole class to everybody. One year we did the entire Sermon on the Mount. Um, and there's some good things about that. There's some things that I'm grateful about that. Um, but I quickly got to college and realized this, this is not the world I grew up in. And I actually didn't step into a relationship with Jesus until I was 17. So I was just about to get to college days. And when I did, it was like something went off and I was just, I was just enthralled. I was all in. I was like, whatever we're doing, I want more. I want to go to every Bible study. I got a group of seventh graders and I was like, you guys aren't doing anything. Like you're like, we're making a Bible study. You guys are mine, right? I don't know if I scared them. I don't know that they all came. Uh, and then I heard about this thing we were going to do that summer where we were going to go to Florida. And I don't know about you, but when I hear Florida, I think of things like Disney World. I think of the beach. Uh, but what we did is we went through a week-long course where they taught us uh, the ABCs of sharing our faith with people. Um, so what it was is you had to get people to admit that they were a sinner, and then you had to get them to believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and then you had to get them to confess that he was Lord, right? ABCs. And then we went door-to-door -door knocking on people's doors in the 95-degree heat, and like we'd talk them through the ABCs or it'd be on the street corner in the middle of this blazing sun, right? Completely effective, like great, great strategy. Um, and there were a lot of things about that that were really challenging, but something it did that was good is it helped me figure out how do I talk to people about this thing that's so important to me? And how do I have the courage to at least just start a conversation with somebody? But something it also did is it, it gave me a sense of responsibility, right? Like there are people everywhere that, um, it felt like I needed to talk to everybody I could, everybody I saw, everybody I met about Jesus. And I show up on uh, my college campus, which was a liberal arts college, 
and immediately knew this is, this is different. I felt the responsibility to share Jesus with everybody on campus. And I was like, how in the world am I going to do this? So what I did is I wrote a letter. Um, and the, you can summarize the letter by saying, hi, my name's Wayne. Um, I didn't come here to party. I came here to play football and to get a business degree. And I love Jesus, and I would love to talk to you about Jesus. So anytime you want, you can come knock on my door, and we'll have a conversation. And then I, like Martin Luther, 95 Thesis style, like just nailed it to the front of my dorm. Uh, and I left it there for, I, I guess, three months. And um, part of why I never talked about it before is because I just wanted to be in the past. Like, I just wanted to forget about it. Like, this never happened. Nobody knows. Nobody asked me. We don't talk about it. Because um, it was incredibly, wildly ineffective. Um, there was literally one person who knocked on my door and wanted to talk about this letter. And I can summarize their conversation by saying, they told me that was a bad idea, <laughs> right? That was the sum. And uh, so I took it down, like, we're going to keep that in the past. We're never going to talk about that again. And here we are today. Um, but when I was in seminary, I was introduced to this book, and it was called The Celtic Way of Evangelism. And there were some ideas, and there were some thoughts and stories that helped give language to what I was experiencing and what was going on in me at the time. And what I realized is that, yes, I wanted to talk to people about Jesus, but there was some guilt uh, that I was working through, that I felt guilty and responsible for not sharing Jesus with people. And essentially what I was inviting people into with the message around admitting that they were a sinner was I was inviting them into their own guilt. Essentially, I was inviting everybody into like a shared sense of guilt. And I think there's more to it than this, right? And what, what the Celtic Christians, what St. Patrick and his earlier, earliest followers understood really well is that there's more to this, that if it's in us, it's going to be in our conversations. And what we want to invite people into is grace and love and mercy. And so what I want to talk about is how do we have conversations that invite people into that space instead of guilt and shame and rejection. Does that make sense? So Aristotle had this idea where he would talk about communication and he would talk about there's three huge pieces of communicating with people. And this is true whether you're in a large group setting, like kind of like where I'm communicating to an audience that's large, or this is true in a one-on-one -on -one setting, whether you're just two people having a conversation, that there is uh, the logos of the communication. There's the message, right? What is actually spoken and what is the form and function? Is this poetry? Is it prose? Is it dialogue? Is it a monologue? What, what's the logos of the conversation? And then there's also what, what he called the pathos of both the communicator as well as the audience. And again, it's true of large settings as well as in one-on-one. -on -one. What do these people feel? What are they passionate about? What's their emotional state? And then he also talked about there's also the ethos of the communicator, what is the essence of this person? What is the texture of their soul? What's their character? What do you know is true about them from the moment you meet them throughout your entire interactions? And what St. Patrick and the Celtic Christians understood and said they were going to do is they were going to focus way more on ethos and pathos than they were on logos. 
where I think for many of us and for how I was taught to share my faith, it was way focused on the logos rather than working through like, hey, what's actually in me? And there's some really beautiful ways that this plays out. So I want to go to a story in the scriptures that I think is going to help articulate this idea and the interaction between ethos, pathos, and logos. And I actually have a couple of pictures to show you of where this story took place. So you can see here, this is a story or a picture on the Sea of Galilee. Um, and if you look over the folks' uh, heads in the, in the picture, you can see how there's a hill that's kind of sloping down and it's going down into the water. Just beautiful, right? Uh, let's go to the next picture because you can see it really well too. So that hill there from across the Sea of Galilee is a region that's known as the Gerasenes. Uh, it's actually a Greek province, a Greek place. Uh, it was referred to often as the Decapolis or the, the Ten Cities. Uh, and what happened is Jesus got his followers, his, his disciples, and he said, okay, guys, we're going to go across the sea. We're going to cross the lake. We're going to go over to the other side, to the Gerasenes. And when they got there, they were immediately met by a man who had been tormented by a lot of demons. In fact, later in the conversation, when they're having a conversation, the guy says, you can call us, the demons say, well, you can call us legion, which is like saying we're an army, we're many, we're lots. Um, but when he gets there, the, this man comes to him and he says to Jesus, Jesus, what are you doing? Have mercy on me, son of the most high God. Which that phrase, son of the most high God, is a, is a clue. It's a tip that this man has a polytheistic Greek way of thinking about God. He's familiar with people like Zeus and Artemis and Hades, that to refer to Jesus as son of the most high God is referring to him in that polytheistic structure, right? It's a clue that they are not in Kansas anymore. They're not in Israel. They have crossed over to the other side. And so Jesus and, this, and the demons have this conversation, and eventually uh, the demons ask Jesus, hey, will you not just cast us out, but will you uh, let us go into those pigs? which is exactly how it went the last time you exercised some demons, I'm sure, right? But nothing weird about this story at all yet, right? Um, and so Jesus agrees and says, sure, you can go into, the demon, into these pigs. And the pigs freak out, run down that slope that you saw into the lake, and they drown themselves. Again, nothing weird about this story at all. Um, so, but that's where we pick up in verse 16. And it says, those who had witnessed everything told the others what had happened how Jesus had healed the man, how the pigs had rushed into the sea, and how they had destroyed themselves. When they had heard the whole story, the Gerasenes turned to Jesus and begged him to go away. Now, I got to say, at this point in the story, that makes a whole lot of sense. Because essentially what's happened is their entire economy has just been decimated. How they provide for their family, how they, how they put food on the table, gone. And so they're saying, hey, Jesus, whatever you've got going on, we've had enough of it. Would you please take it and go? <laughs> and so it says, when Jesus climbed back into the boat, the, the cure demoniac asked him if he could come and be with him. Now, if you remember last week when Sean was uh, teaching, he shared from Luke chapter 10, where Jesus called together the 12 disciples, and then he called together 70 more disciples and then he sent them out to go proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is here, near. And he sent them out to go pronounce peace on towns and villages and homes. That he brought people in, taught them exactly what he was doing, taught them what his message was. And then he sent them out to go do the same. And what this man is saying in this moment, as Jesus is getting back in the boat to go back, he's saying, I'm so grateful for what you've done for me that I'm signing up, right? I'm volunteering. I'm all in. I want to be on the team. Please let me go with you. 
But Jesus said, no. And go to the next one. It says, Jesus said, stay here. I want you to go back to your own people and let them see what the Lord has done, how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began telling this news in the 10 cities region. And wherever he went, people were amazed by what he told them. What I think is so fascinating about this is that Jesus' invitation is to him, not go tell all these things, go talk about the ABCs, let them see what God has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. And you would think that this is the moment where Jesus would say, you know what, before we do that, we need to fix your theology, right? I need to make sure that when I tell you that you are to show people that God has had mercy on you, that you're not talking about Zeus or Artemis or any of these other gods that you're familiar with, that you're talking about Yahweh, right? We need to teach you about Moses and the Exodus. We need to teach you about Isaiah, right? Not even on his radar, doesn't even care but just says, no, 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 go show them how God has had mercy on you. Let them see it. And let's go to the, to the next passage. So if you fast forward into Mark chapter 7, you can actually see the results of what happens. So it says in, in verse 31 of Mark 7, Jesus traveled on his way through Tyre and Sidon, eventually returning to the region of the Sea of Galilee. From there, he pressed on to the area of the 10 cities. So he goes back to this other place that he was before. And it says, among the sick who were brought to him was a man who was deaf and could barely speak at all. And those who brought him begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man. You see how it's flipped, how it's turned? Where before they're begging him, you have got to go. And now not only are crowds showing up, but they are begging Jesus, will you please lay your hands on this man? So Jesus took him aside from the crowd alone and touched his ears with his fingers. Then after spitting on his fingers, Jesus touched the man's tongue. Looking heavenward to God, Jesus sighed and commanded, open up and let this man speak. And immediately the man could hear. His tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. Jesus ordered those who had witnessed this to tell no one. But the more he insisted, the more zealously people spread the word. And the people astonished said, he does everything so well. He even returns sound to the deaf and mute. And what we see is Jesus with this man is saying to him, I'm not as concerned with the logos. I'm not as concerned with the message, with the form, the ABCs of it. I want you to go and put on display how has God had mercy on you and look at what it does. When these people see this man's ethos, his pathos, it changes everything, and it actually invites a new person to experience a healing and a restoration that would not have been possible without it. My question for us, Ecclesia, is where has God had mercy on you? And how can we put that on display for others to see? And if I'm honest, if we're gonna do this well, it means that we're going to have to be willing to talk about our demons. That we're going to have to be willing to talk about our pain, about the places and times and spaces where we felt tormented, where something has been bothering us, where there's been pain and hurt and suffering, because it's in that space where our ethos and our pathos and God's mercy can be on display and people can see it. 
So I was talking with a man who's uh, been a great friend and a mentor to some of us here uh, on staff on the west side and uh, just been a really great source of encouragement. But he's, he's been through a bit of a, a difficult season here recently. Uh, so his wife's mother recently passed away and his father's health was declining and not doing well, was in hospice. Uh, so he spent a few months, extended time, just being present with his dad. And what he told us was he knew that his dad, uh, he wasn't sure where his dad stood uh, with his faith and with a relationship with Jesus. And so one of the things he wanted to get to talk about with him as he's nearing the end of his life was to talk about Jesus, talk about faith. But what he did is he didn't go in and, and just start talking about it. Instead, he just showed up and he just served his dad. So he was there to scrub his feet and to bathe them. He was there to change his diapers. He clothed him, changed his sheets. He went and got food for him. Whatever his dad needed, he was there to do it. It's the kind of stuff that um, typically we pay nurses and we pay folks in hospice to do. And he said, I'm going to show up and I'm going to be here and I'm going to do it. No paycheck, no strings attached. I'm just going to be here. And what was, what was interesting is that uh, by the end of his extended stay there, his dad brought it up to him and said, hey, I know you've got a relationship with Jesus, and I'd love to hear more about that. And what this man told us is that he was, I mean, smile across his face is about a week and a half before his father uh, passed, he was able to lead his dad in a prayer where his dad said, I want to start a relationship with Jesus. And I'm telling you, it's because of this man's ethos and his pathos. And he also went on to tell us that part of why uh, his dad was in the state he was in was because uh, he was an alcoholic and he had basically destroyed his liver. And what this man told us was that watching this happen uh, was that he got a chance to almost see the future, right? Like, where's, where is this going to go for me? And he told us, hey, I, I don't, I'm not an alcoholic, but it's made me actually reconsider. And since then, I've actually stopped drinking alcohol altogether. And this is not a sermon about alcohol or anything like that. But what I can tell you is in that moment, all of us around the table and what he's told us is as he shared this story, um, everyone tells him, man, you're making me think about that. Maybe I should give that up. Um, because he's not selling anything. He's not trying to convince us of anything. He's simply sharing, this is what I've seen. This is where God has had mercy on me. This is what I've learned. And this is what it's stirring in me, right? What is in us that is on fire, that is burning, that is stirring, that we just have to share it, right? You see this play out in this story where Jesus actually looks at the town people and he says, you shouldn't be telling this. You should keep quiet. And the more he tells them this, the more and more they actually share it. That's what we're talking about with ethos, pathos, and evangelism. What has God done in our lives that's so burning and stirring that even if Jesus himself looks at us and says, maybe you shouldn't share that, that we could not keep it in because it's a part of who we are. That's the invitation, is how do we invite people into that mercy, that ethos, that pathos. But you know that the Celtic Christians were famous for doing some really innovative, interesting things with the Logos, with the message and how they did that. They were famous for putting on plays, for writing new plays, and then they would gather people and they'd 
perform it, but they would invite anybody in the community to, to act it out, anybody who wanted to. You didn't have to believe what the message was. You didn't have to know. It was just like, come, come and do this. And it's interesting, this, a uh, couple of weeks ago, I was talking with uh, one of our MDO teachers. You guys may not know, but Ecclesia, we've got uh, a Mother's Day Out program here on the West Side, which is amazing. Christina Dismuke, who's the director, has done, fan- yes, like she's awesome. Um, so true. It is not just about, let me drop off my kids and get a couple of hours relief. What, what your kids find there is a place where they're safe, where they're loved, where they're engaged in stories and learning in really creative, innovative ways. It's been a gift to have my daughter there. Uh, but one of the teachers uh, who's going to be my daughter's teacher next year uh, found me one day, like walking through the halls and just said, hey, I'm excited to get to teach your daughter. Tell me about her. <laughs> and I unloaded. I was like, I don't know if you're ready for this. Like, she is a pistol. She is a firecracker, right? She's a little performer. So if, uh, if, th- if she had this, if it kind of resembled a microphone to her, uh, she would be on top of the ottoman, on top of the table, couch, whatever, singing, dancing, performing, telling stories. Last weekend, I got to go to my first ever dance recital. Um, and she's four. Um, have any of you ever experienced a four-year-old dance recital and the socialist phenomenon that happens there? It's like nothing else. It is its own little world. It was amazing. So you can imagine an auditorium packed, filled with people, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, brothers, like everybody, it's packed. And then she's got this costume and a giant lollipop and they're like bringing her out there. Lights come up. There's a crowd full of people and doesn't even miss a beat, right? Goes right in and in. she is shaking it. She is breaking it down. She is in her element, right? She is a little firecracker. She also loves to tell stories. Um, and she often will tell us stories about when she was a little girl, uh, which is hilarious, right? You would not believe all the stuff she did when she was a little girl, right? I'm talking about the mountains she's climbed, right? All the places she's been, other siblings she's had that we are yet to meet, you know, like all this kind of stuff. What's really, what the best is though, is when she tells tells us about all the food that she ate when she was a little girl. And we know that's not true, right? Because let's be honest, like we're talking about saltine crackers, honey nut Cheerios, popsicles, goldfish, um, she won't even eat grilled cheese sandwich or chicken nuggets, right? Like that's, that's the kind of field we're in. She will though, by the way, eat a thin crust pizza with a thin crust cheese pizza from Domino's, nowhere else, but only if you tell her it doesn't have cheese on it, right? Um, and yes, I lie to my daughter about whether or not that, that pizza has cheese on it. You can judge me. It's fine. We're trying to get like break out the options. The struggle is real at dinner time at my house. Like this is what it is, right? But she's constantly telling us about all the food she ate when, when she was a little girl. And we're like, yeah, you're lying. That's not true. Um, but my wife and I, uh, my, uh, actually Aiden Elizabeth and my wife just finished their first book which is adorable, by the way. Um, and by book, I mean it's, uh, it's three-hole punch and uh, string is what's like a little knotted string is, is bound, bounding, binding it. Is that the right word? I can't, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. Um, it's bound by th- that. And um, by book, we're talking about like there's 10 words on a page and then the rest is a painting uh, that you're like, mermaid? Is that what that is? Right? Like you can kind of make it out. And it's titled The Mermaid Princess. So that kind of is what part of what clues it off. But they just wrote their first book. So I was telling uh, Amber, who's going to be her teacher, this, and she lights up and just gets so excited. And she says, she's going to love my class because I have every single kid in my class write three stories every year. 
And then not only do they write these stories, but they get to direct it and they get to invite their classmates in to play it out. And I said, okay, one, how do I sign up for your class, right? Like, does my mom need to drop me off? What do we need to do? Like, how does this work out? Um, And then two, tell me why you do that. Tell me more. And she said, I do this because I cannot tell you how much their little personalities come out. Not just the, the child who wrote the story or who directed it, but how much you get to see the personalities of the kids when they're acting out the story, how much they just come alive. And it puts them on display. And I think this is why the Celtic Christians understood we need to do this. We need to do some imaginative things with the Logos because it puts their ethos and pathos on display for other people. But Ecclesia, our story, our Logos, is not just about how do we engage our imaginations, but our message in and of itself is a message of imagination. It's a message of creativity. So I wanna go to one more passage um, in Luke chapter 10. And we're actually gonna pick up where Sean left off. He actually taught from this passage and I told you a little bit about it before where he calls together the 12 disciples, sends them out. He calls together 70 more, sends them out uh, to go do what he's doing. And we're gonna pick up in Luke chapter 10 and verse 38. And it says, Jesus continued from there toward Jerusalem and came to another village. Martha, a resident of that village, welcomed Jesus into her home. Her sister, Mary, who is Mary Magdalene, uh, who we know from other stories in the scriptures, other accounts in the gospels, that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Um, Her sister, Mary, went and sat at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach. Meanwhile, Martha was anxious about all the hospitality arrangements. Martha, interrupting Jesus, said, Lord, why don't you care that my sister is leaving me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to get over here and help me. And Jesus said, oh, Martha, Martha, you are so anxious and concerned about a million details, but really only one thing matters. Mary has chosen that one thing, and I won't take it away from her. Now, it's easy for us in the 21st century to see that phrase, sat at Jesus' feet, and think it's just describing her place and posture in the room. And I'm not saying that that's not true. I think it is describing that. But what you need to know is that in the first century in Israel, that phrase was incredibly loaded. It meant more than just her place and posture in the room. You see this phrase, sat at the feet of so-and-so, appear again and again and again in first century literature. You hear Paul use this in Acts 22 when he's standing in front of a Roman council and he's telling his story and he says, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He's saying, I was a disciple of this man Gamaliel. He taught me what he thinks. He taught me how to pray, he taught me how to talk, and he then sent me out to go do the same, to teach others to do the same. And so for it to say that Mary sat at Jesus' feet was a statement and a declaration that Mary was becoming a disciple of Jesus. Now what you need to know is that in the first century in Israel, this is a patriarchal society. Women would not have been disciples. This would not have been allowed. This would have been culturally taboo. This would have been shameful. This would have been shunned. It would have been shut down. And so there's a part of Martha's response here that I think she sees, hey, this is my role. 
this is how I help, this is what I'm to do, and she's not doing it, would you like get her over here to help me out? But I also wonder if somewhere in Martha's voice is a protective sister who's saying to Jesus, will you stop all of this before it gets out of hand? Will you nip this in the bud? Will you not fill her head with these ideas that she can actually be your disciple? Because we all know that's not true and that's not gonna happen and it's just gonna be painful for her down the road. But Jesus steps in and says, she's chosen the one thing that matters and it will not be taken from her. That Jesus imagines a future for Mary that no one in her culture, that no one in her day could have possibly imagined for her. And the same is true for us. This is the story of God. That Abraham was a man who made his money because he essentially pimped his wife in Egypt, could also become the father of a nation and the father of an entire faith. That Moses, who murdered a man in Egypt, could become the liberator of an entire nation. That David, who was an adulterer and a liar and a murderer and honestly kind of a creep sometimes, could become a man after God's own heart. That God doesn't take our past and cast it aside or blot it over, but God takes all of that and says, there's another story to be told, and we're going to take all that with it and tell something that's even more amazing and more beautiful and more creative than you could have possibly imagined. There's a story or a quote from Patrick that I want to, it's actually from Thomas Cahill on Patrick that I want to share, Um, and it says, Patrick's emotional grasp of Christian truth may have been greater than Augustine's. Augustine looked into his own heart and found there the inexpressible anguish of each individual, which enabled him to articulate a theory of sin that has no equal, the dark side of Christianity. Patrick prayed, made peace with God, and then looked not only into his own heart, but into the hearts of others. And what he saw convinced him of the bright side, that even slave traders can turn into liberators, even murderers can act as peacemakers, and even barbarians can take their place among the nobility of heaven. If you remember, St. Patrick was uh, in England and he was captured by pirates, sent to Ireland, sold into slavery, eventually uh, escaped, got his freedom, went back to England, became a priest, and then when he was 44, decided he was going to go back to Ireland to the place where he was enslaved to proclaim a mercy and a grace and a forgiveness. And what ensued was the most barbaric, unchristian place in the known world by the end of his life became the most Christian place in the known world. Because his ethos and his pathos, his where God had had mercy on him, was constantly put on display in imaginative ways. And he imagined a future for those people that no one else could imagine. Ecclesia, what would it look like for us to imagine a future for us that no one else does? What are the stories that you tell yourself about how you're not smart enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not good enough, you had that divorce, you were fired from that job, fill in the blank. Those things are true but there's another story to be told. There's an imagination and a story that's waiting to unfold. 
It's true for us. It's true for our neighbors, our coworkers, our kids' teachers. It's true for everyone we interact with. What would it look like for us to become known as the people who imagine a world and a future and stories that none of these people can imagine for themselves? So I got a few ways that I think that we can begin to become those people. Uh, One is to just invite our friends, neighbors, family into our passions, uh, into the things that we love to do, into the things that make us come alive. Uh, Because what I know is true is when we do these things, something comes out of us. You can just feel it, right? If I talk about running or riding my bike or being in a race, like my, you can just feel it. The cadence changes, my shoulders drop. Like I just, it's like my, my passion comes out. Uh, that when we do these things and we invite people to do it with them, they get to see our ethos and pathos. Uh, another way we can do it is to take the Ecclesia Taqueria challenge, right? If you're not sure where to start, find a taqueria that's close and go there, take a friend, and then pick something on the menu that you're like not even sure what it is and just try it. And if there's a flavor or there's something in there that you're grateful for, just talk about that. Talk about the things you're grateful for. Because when you get into a conversation about what you're grateful for, what the other person's grateful for, your ethos and your pathos is going to be on display. Another way you can do this is you can take your friends, neighbors to the Astros games. So I don't know about you, I don't know, like, like around here at Ecclesia, we love the Astros. Absolutely love them. And for a, for a while, we have actually made it available that if you want to take your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers to the Astros games to have a conversation, you can get free tickets. Uh, and what we know is true is that if you take your friends to the movies, um, you know, there's like slides that come up before that say silence, no talking, right? Like you can't talk to them. You're going to be culturally shunned and, you know, like kicked out. At the basketball game, it's so fast-paced, you can't talk. But at a baseball game, it's slow enough to where you can get into a conversation, you can get into a rhythm. And if you're not sure what to ask, just ask them who their heroes are. And just know that they're going to reciprocate, and they're going to ask you who your heroes are. Now, i got to be honest. This is the point in the sermon where if I was, if I'm honest, there's like this pressure as a pastor to tell you, this is where you tell them that your hero is Jesus, Right? But if I'm really honest, to me, even as I say that, it feels a little cliche for me. Like, it just doesn't feel authentic. It just doesn't feel right. But you know who I would tell about? Tell about my dad, who grew up without a father, um, but who loved my brother and I so well and taught us what it means to be present and there with our kids. I'd tell you about my son, um, who in so many ways sets me free and helps me not worry about what other people think in small moments when he's having a hard time in Target or other places, that he lets me just be with him and be present. Um, and then I'd tell, I'd tell you about Coach Johnson, who sat with me and let me ask every searing, cynical question I had about Jesus and the Bible and just took it and just loved me and who was so critical in leading me into a relationship with Jesus. And if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be sitting here today doing what I'm doing. I'd tell you about him. And what I know is true is that you can feel and hear the difference, right? If I say like, oh, my hero is Jesus, right? It doesn't feel quite the same as when I tell you about those three. So when they ask you, tell them the truth. 
tell them who your heroes are. It's going to come out, and it's enough. Um, fourth thing you can do, we have uh, somebody who's a part of the Ecclesia community. His name is Bob Lukafar, amazing guy, and he has uh, been really integral in starting an organization called Jubilee Prison Ministry, where they actually make it accessible and easy if you want to go visit with inmates in different prisons. You can actually build a relationship and go sit and talk with them on a regular basis. Amazing. There's about three prisons that are uh, within um, driving range of Houston. Uh, It's easy to sign up. They can train you and get that going. It's an amazing opportunity. Um, One more way is you can do some mentoring. Um, I don't know if you know, but we uh, do some partnering with uh, Spring Branch ISD with Springwoods Middle School. Uh, we've got one of the principals, Trish Thomas, came to us and said, hey, we, we've got a mentoring program. We need some mentors. We met with her and like, how many mentors do you need? And we would love to have two, is what they said. All right, well, how many do we need to ask for? So we said, okay, we're going to ask for 12 because uh, you said you need two. And what I love is that 31 of you responded and said, like, we'll go mentor. Uh, we're going to show up once a week and have lunch with these kids at their school. And today... Uh, you guys that signed up are actually taking your mentees to the Astros game. It's going to be so fun. Look for some pictures. It's going to be great. Uh, But that's one way that you can really invest and make a difference in a one-on-one conversation with somebody. If doing it in Spring Branch doesn't work, we also partner with Big Brothers Big Sisters in Houston, uh, and they do a lot of the, like, grunt work to get that set up to train. It's an amazing chance to do that. But lastly, I think one of the best ways, and this is for all of us, to begin to put God's mercy on display is to just remember to pause and reflect on where has he had mercy on us, to come to the table, to eat the bread and to drink the juice and the wine and to be reminded of where God's had mercy on us. So my prayer for you today as we come to the table, as we come to feast, is that you would be flooded with the memories of where God has shown grace and mercy to you and that it would birth in you an imagination for a story that's waiting to be told for you and for your friends and neighbors and coworkers. Will you pray with me? God, we are so grateful for your love and your presence in our lives. For the fact that you spoke and created everything that we see and that when you speak, you're telling a story that's waiting to be told and you invite us into that. So God, we ask today that as uh, we eat this bread and we thank you for it and for your body, which it represents, we ask that as we eat it today that we would be reminded of your mercy and your presence in our lives, that it would be so real we can taste it. And we thank you for this cup, for this juice and this wine and for your blood, which it represents. And we ask that as we drink today, that it would light a spark in us, that it would start a fire in us, a remembrance of your mercy that is so great that we could not hold it in. Be with us today as we feast and celebrate. And we ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.